Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 26. This is our last Wednesday here. So next Wednesday, we will be at Fruitdale Elementary. Um, I've really enjoyed this room. I think it's an awesome place. Uh, appreciate it. It's just cool. So Matthew 26, here's what I feel like when I get to Matthew 26, personally. I feel like I'm on holy ground almost, like I should remove my shoes or something. There's a lot of tension in it. Uh, there's betrayal, lies, really bad leaders who bring trumped up charges against Jesus. It's, it's incredible. But also there's this brutal side to it, the mocking and the beating and the unfairness where there are times you just want to scream. But the section ends marvelously in chapter 28. So it's just, it, it's one of these sections of the Bible that, that it's like this. I have a picture. You can show that picture. Isn't that a brilliant picture? Every parent has one like this, right? But the dog is even like, dude, it's your fault, man. Right? The dog's like ticked. Look at what you've done. Bad boy, bad boy. <laughs> like, I just love it. He's just like, so we all have that picture, right? It's what keeps Sherwin-Williams in business, like repainting walls because your kids have just made a mess of stuff, right? Mess, made a mess of the dog. <laughs> oh, it's so awesome. But here's the next picture that I really like. Check out this picture. This is what the kid did. Look what the mom turned it into. Isn't that brilliant? You got this mess of a kid on your wall and she takes that mess and she makes something incredibly beautiful. This is part of one of my favorite sayings, and the, the saying goes like this God writes straight with crooked lines. And what we're gonna see in this next section is there's all these crooked lines. Crooked line after crooked line after crooked line after crooked line. And what God does is He writes straight with them all that there's still Matthew 28. Even though there's all this crookedness and all this terribleness, in the end, oh, it's straight, and it's a portrait that's so beautiful, okay? So I'm gonna slow down a bit. We'll take two weeks to do 26 and two weeks to do 27 because they're kind of really, really, really brilliant. But let's jump in. And what you're gonna see is that there's all this messes that, that people are making, the Judases, the Caiaphases, the Pontius Pilates, and yet the end is God writes straight with crooked lines, all right? Chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then... The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now that's going to change in verse 14 because of another crooked line called Judas. And they're going to seize on Judas and they're going to turn their clock up. 
All right? So Jesus has finished chapter 24 and 25, which is just all read. It's Jesus talking, 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 talking. And the end of chapter 25 is this. Jesus says, I'm coming back. I will be enthroned. And I'm bringing with me this new, brilliant kingdom. And he has ended there. And then in chapter 26, the next thing he says is this, I'm going to die. I think that's really important. Because the cross and the kingdom are married together. The kingdom does not come without the cross. Now, we'll talk a lot more about that in chapter 27, but I will say this. The same is true for you and me. The cross and the coming kingdom, they're married together. So there's a very famous pastor. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's famous for a number of reasons. He's kind of re-emerged because of a a book about him, really good book by Eric Metaxas. I recommend it. But he's a guy that in World War II, he goes back to Germany to be with the German people. He had escaped. He was in New York. He goes back there underneath Hitler. But the other reason why he goes back there, not just to be with his people, he goes back there, guess, to do what? Kill Hitler. Like he has an attempt on Hitler's life. He's arrested and he's put to death. Like, I love that kind of pastor. I can roll with that kind of a pastor. Dude, you're trying to get Hitler? Let's go have lunch in a very public place, but let's have lunch, right? (laughs) So Dietrich Bonhoeffer knows this, and he says this. It's one of his most famous sayings. He says this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That the kingdom and the cross are always connected. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. So the context, we get chapter 25. Here's this kingdom that's coming. I'm bringing this kingdom. But Jesus says, before the kingdom is the cross. And that's true for every single one of us. Before the kingdom, there will be a cross. And if we realize that and embrace that, beauty happens. It's when we don't look out, and we'll talk about that. You see that in Judas, okay? So... Right after Jesus says this, it's almost like Matthew does this movie thing where like he switches scenes, like here's Jesus, then all of a sudden, boom, he switches into Caiaphas' palace, right? Now, is Caiaphas a good guy or a bad guy? He's a really bad guy, okay? So I'm going to geek out for just a minute here and give you some history. In 165 BC, there's this thing that happens in Israel It's the Maccabean revolt. This guy named Mattathias, five kids, revolts against Antiochus Epiphanes. You guys know this. I've talked about this before. And they they get him out of the land, right? Well, that begins what's known in Israel as the Hasmonean dynasty. And they started good, but they got corrupt really, really quick. And one of the things that they did was this. They begin to sell the priesthood and the high priest to the highest bidder. So they didn't do what the Bible says. It's, hey, priests have to be Levites, and high priests have to be descendants, direct descendants of Aaron, the high priest. They, they trashed that, and they just said, whoever's got the most money can buy this office of priesthood. So Caiaphas is not really supposed to be a high priest. He's bought this 
position. Well, because of what the Hasmoneans did, there was this group of people that lived in Israel, especially Jerusalem, that said, we hate this. So they fled Jerusalem and they went east and they went down into the desert and they started to live in this area called Qumran. And um, they were weird. I mean, let's be honest. They are weird people. We found this document now that it's, it's their rules, <laughs> their commands that they had to keep. And they, they, they said, hey, we want to live differently, which is good, right? We want to live off the grid or whatever, but they just got off kilter. So one of the rules that you can read them, they're, they're just, they're unbelievable. They had all these rules on going to the bathroom, like the way that you had to do it <laughs> and how you had to do it. It was like nutty. And here was the worst part of it. You could not go to the bathroom on the Sabbath day. Yes, an entire day, you could not use the restroom. <laughs> so you're like, what time is it? Man, 7.35. Oh, goodness, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. So they, they were nutty. They were OCD to the max. But, but here's something they did. They were really OCD about the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and the Tanakh, the rest of it. And so they kept writing these copies over and over, these copies of the, the Torah over and over and over and over. And then they would roll them up and they'd put them in jars and they'd hide them in these caves. And so guess what we have today? The Dead Sea Scrolls, right? So we have all these Dead Sea Scrolls that are because of these guys, because the Hasmoneans were really bad people and selling the priesthood, they left, they were OCD and weird, but they, they had this thing about them where they wanted to copy the Bible over and over and hide it in places like squirrels, right? But here's the great thing about it. There was this idea about the Bible, and I, I don't, you can Google it, but don't. It's called J-E-D-P. And what that theory says is this, is that the Bible was really small in the beginning. And and then there was these guys that because they had an agenda, they would add on to the Bible a little bit here. So J stands for the Jehovists and E stands for the uh, Elohimists and D stands for the Davidists and P stands for the priests. So each one was coming to the Bible trying to say, hey, we need to worship Jehovah, or we need to worship Elohim, or we need to have the dynasty of David happening, or we need to have the priest in power. So they're all trying to add on these sections, if you would, to the Bible. So there, it, was, it was a very predominant theory. Well, the problem with that is this. We got the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what the Dead Sea Scrolls is this, because the, the Old Testament canon was finally kind of codified by what's called the Masoretics. It's a Masoretic text. It was in the, about the 8th or 9th century AD. So they said, okay, from here it's been building, building, building. Then we finally have it. It's codified. All right? Well, the problem with that is the Old Testament in the Dead Sea almost identically matches the Masoretic text. There's nothing added to it. So it's like this brilliant, brilliant way that God says, I'll preserve my word, and I'm actually going to show you it has not changed. So God writes straight with really crooked lines. The Hasmonean dynasty, Caiaphas, weirdos in the desert. God says, I'm going to use all that for my glory. It's just a brilliant thing, right? So so now you've got, from this point forward, what you're going to see really until the resurrection is Matthew begins to give us these character sketches of how different people respond to what's happening to Jesus. Have you ever noticed like, when some, an event happens, different kind of people react very differently to that same event. Have you noticed that? 
I'll give you my best example. It's from a good friend of mine. His name is Josh Bossard. I was on the mission field in Vanuatu uh, for one year with him. And he tells this story. It was, it was revolutionary for him. And, and it was when he was 18, he left Medford, moved to Bend with a bunch of his buddies to ski and snowboard up there. So he had this house with like five roommates. And while they're in this house one day, there came this knock on the door. And it was their, they didn't know this though, it was their youth pastor. And he had dressed up like a bug exterminator with a mask on and everything. And he had this backpack sprayer thing. And the backpack sprayer thing, he'd filled up with flour, but nobody knew that. It was just spraying white powder, right? So he knocks on the door. He's in his whole garb. One of the roommates opens the door and he just shoves him aside and says, hey, I'm the bug exterminator here to exterminate some bugs. And he starts pumping his thing and spraying around the house. Josh said he was in the kitchen, like making a sandwich. And he kind of looked over and was like, Oh, all right, bug exterminator, okay. Keeps making his sandwich, all right? Another dude was watching TV. He like turned it up. Mm, I can't hear with his. Um, his third roommate though, started following him around. He's like, who's my landlord? Who hired you to do this? Who is your, like just grilling him. Like, what are you, do- what are you talking about? The fourth roommate picked up a aluminum fly case and started following the dude that was following the exterminator guy, just waiting, waiting for his opportunity. So they're kind of walking around. He's just spraying everything. He's like, finally, the guy that was asking all the questions is like, listen, man, you're in a hazmat suit and you're spraying this stuff. What about me, right? <laughs> and the guy just turns around and just goes, and just sprays him in the face, right? That dude, he just, he, Josh said he just fell to the ground. The dude with the fly case just went, boom, and just started beating the snot out of the guy until he tore off his mask. He's like, I'm a youth pastor. <laughs> Josh said, in evaluating that, he says, I never want to be that guy again. I never want to be the guy just making the sandwich <laughs> like things are going on. Like, I want to be a guy that responds. He actually prayed that. God, let, let me be a responder. Not someone that just watches the thing happen. Like, oh, let me still make my sandwich. I want to be the, fly, the guy with the fly rod case or the guy questioning. So what we're going to see is there are these character sketches of all these different individuals and how they respond. And most likely, you'll find yourself in one of them or in many of them. So the first one we get is really Caiaphas. And what we learn about Caiaphas is this. He's not a high priest. He's a politician, right? Look at verse five. So he's leading this thing. And they say this, hey, we want to kill Jesus, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. That's a politician. Priests do what's right. Politicians do what gets them reelected. Priests say, my highest thing is to please God. A politician says, my highest aim is to please my group. And when we do that, look out. Some of the worst acts in history have been done by people trying to please other people. Pontius Pilate kills Jesus, even though he knows it's out of envy and the dude's totally guiltless because he wants to please people. Here's the problem. When you stop saying, I want to please God and start wanting to please people, you lose your true north compass. Then everything is relative. No longer is it, hey, this is right and that's wrong. It's, well, you know, whatever makes people happy. And you get very, very dangerous. They kill God. 
Caiaphas, because he's a people pleaser and wants to do what's expedient for him, kills God, right? That's our first character sketch. Now, immediately, he is contrasted with this other person, verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Second character sketch. It's Mary, and I just put it like this. She's a server. She's a server. If you know Jesus' ministry, and you should by now, we've gone through the, almost the entire gospel of Matthew. What you see is this. There's a lot of women involved in Jesus' ministry. It begins with a woman, right? Mary, <laughs> you're going to give birth to Jesus. Then there's John's and James' mother, whose name is also Mary. Then you've got Mary Magdalene. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to a Mary. You have this Mary right here. We find out in the other synoptics, her name is Mary. It's Mary that does this, right? So what does this mean? Name your child Mary, because she's going to be used greatly. I mean, obviously. Jesus likes Marys. There's a ton of Marys in the Bible. No, it means this. Jesus elevated the role of women throughout his ministry, joint heirs with him. You are true kingdom joint heirs. And the setting that this takes place, it's fascinating to me. The setting is at the house of Simon the leper. How would you like to have that as a name? Have you ever thought about that? Chris the cancer. Frank the flu. Luke the leukemia. I mean, it's just like, really? Other cultures are interesting like that. In Vanuatu, where I lived for a year, there was this man who was there before me, great guy, his name is Mike Whitman, but he's a really large man. So their name for him was Fat Fat Mike. And so they would ask me, hey, how's Fat Fat Mike? I'm like, really? That's how you're going to refer? Okay. I mean, they're just honest, I guess. So they're honest about, hey, this guy, Simon the leper, that's your name. Here's what I love about this. Jesus chooses to go hang out in a guy's house who's called Simon the leper. I love that. If you know human nature, we have an aversion to things that are unclean, right? Like there's uncleanness by association. I learned this when my little son, my now nine-year-old, when he was 18 months old. It was me and him at our house. Um, we were eating sandwiches. 
And he says, dad, let me get you a drink of water. He's 18 months old. Where's he going to get water? Well, the only way he can get it is in the bathroom, climbing up on the sink and getting it, right? So he goes in the bathroom, he gets some water, he brings it out to me. And I remember looking at that just thinking, I'm not drinking that, <laughs> right? Unclean by association. I don't know exactly what's happening in that bathroom with that thing, but I'm not drinking it, right? And he's like, dad, drink your water. Oh, dude, I'm not thirsty right now. I'm okay, right? <laughs> There's actually studies on this. They did this study where they made these white plates and then they put on them a black rat, and then they, they glazed over them like they're clean, but they had this picture of a black rat on them, and they fed people meals. Guess what they found out? People did not, the majority did not eat the food that had touched the black rat, because in their mind, they're thinking, ooh, yuck, a rat. I'm not eating that food. It's unclean by association. It's very common. Sometimes I think, we do the same thing to God. God can't be around sin. God can't be around sinners, right? You ever heard that? Is that true? Man, Adam and Eve, first sinners, who shows up first? God, right? What you guys do? Oh, let me help you. Let me give you hope. Jesus is coming, right? How about Isaiah? God shows up. Isaiah's like, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. What does God do? Let me help you. Grab a coal, cure him. Prodigal son, totally stinking sinner. What does the father do? Runs out and grabs a hold of him. Jesus here, I think once again, is showing, listen, when it comes to me, uncleanness does not transfer. That there's an upside downness to this kingdom. We talked about this back in chapter 15. Where in the Old Testament, it was if you touched a dead body and you touched somebody else, that uncleanness would transfer. But if you're a holy person and you touched an unclean person, they didn't become clean, they became dirty, right? That's the way things work. If I'm healthy and a dude with the flu sneezes on me, what am I going to get? The flu. If I'm healthy due to the flu and I sneeze on the dude with the flu, does he get better? No, right? That's the way the world works. Jesus is saying, I'm switching this world that's going upside down. The cleanness that I bring cleanses people and their uncleanness does not touch me. It will not defile me. It's just one more hint at that. Simon, the, or yeah, Simon, the leper's house. And here's what Mary does. She gives her absolute best to Jesus. This alabaster box would be worth at least a year's salary. Once it's opened, you had to use it all. And a very, very short shelf life. So she opens it up. She uses it. Now, why does she do that? Is there a law? Was there a rule? Was she told to? No. She has found in three years Jesus to be beautiful. And because he's beautiful, she worships and serves him. I found that to be true. If you can get people to worship the beauty of Jesus, the rest is taken care of. You don't have to guilt people. You don't have to give them rules. You don't have to do any of that. It's taken care of. They give their best. They give their all for him. Beauty captures us, doesn't it? You see it in kids. We see it all the time. Just something that captures them, something that inspires them. It has to be beautiful. And yet, what do the other disciples say? It's especially Judas this is a waste. 
what she has done is a waste. We could have taken that, sold it, and given it to the poor. Would they have actually done that? Probably not. It's just a red herring. It's, they're envious or jealous, or I don't know what was happening with them, but they, for some reason, they did not like it. It was wasteful. I think there's a little bit of that in all of us. Sometimes the way people worship or the way people celebrate Jesus or even what churches sometimes use money for, we can be like, man, that's a waste. We could have taken that money and fed the poor or gone on missions or done that kind of stuff. And there's definitely a balance to that. But I also think Jesus is worth it. And when you get away from that, you get into, into a weird kind of thing. And it reminds me of like, if you've studied history, the USSR, when they got rid of God and they became atheist, you look at the 1950s and the 1960s, their architecture, guess what it was? Ugly, drab, square, windowless. Why? Because they became utilitarians. People were like animals. You just warehouse them. You get your job done. You go home to your little tiny flat. There's no beauty. There's nothing. In fact, they've done studies on certain ones of the Soviet bloc countries. The depression that came out of that, there's generations still trying to recover from the lack of beauty, the lack of art, the lack of anything that was good. I see God extravagantly wasteful when it comes to beauty. Every night, God wastes a sunset. Every morning, God wastes a sunrise. Weekly, God wastes flowers. I think God loves beauty, loves it, loves creativity. I think if you read Revelation 21 and 22, you see incredible beauty, that God is creative and he loves beauty, never wasted. So Mary here serves because she's found Jesus to be so beautiful and it costs her pretty much everything she probably had. Has serving Jesus cost you anything? I ask myself that question, especially when I read 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul says, look, it's cost me a lot. Has serving Jesus actually cost me? Because when it does, Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, they're gonna talk about her. When it costs you, people talk about it. Billy Grahams, the Mother Teresas, the David Brainerds, the Hudson Taylors, right? It costs those guys. And to this day, we still talk about them because they're like, they're like Mary. They found Jesus to be so beautiful. I'm giving my life for that. So in contrast to Caiaphas, the politician, you've got Mary, the server, but immediately Matthew flips it again. And now we meet another character sketch. Verse 14, Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So back up in verse 5. They had said, hey, let's wait, let's wait, let's wait. But now Judas, the crooked line, changes everything. Ooh, 
Well, this changes everything. If you're going to betray him for us, okay, we'll seize whatever opportunity comes. And it's actually needed because Jesus dies on Passover. Their original plan was, let's wait till after Passover because God writes straight with crooked lines. So here's what happens. Judas, not a server of Jesus, Judas is a seller of Jesus. And he sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Put that into today's amount, about 4,000 bucks, a couple months salary. So Mary gives a year's salary minimally to Jesus. Judas sells out Jesus for just a couple months salary. It's not a lot of money. So why did he do it? I think personally, there's all these ideas. Here's what I think. Judas was always using Jesus to get what he wanted. He wanted a kingdom. He wanted power. He wanted wealth. He wanted prosperity. And when Jesus starts talking about the cross, guess what? The kingdom and wealth and power are in jeopardy. I'm not getting those. You die, I'm not getting any of those things. So it's almost as as if Judas just says, okay, okay, I'm gonna hedge my bets here. I'm gonna get what I can before Jesus is gone, right? So Mary served Jesus because Jesus is what she wanted. Judas didn't. And I think right in these two characters, we get some of the biggest mistakes that happen in Christianity. I think it's the biggest one. And the mistake is this. I'll give you an analogy first to try to explain it because it's this important. Let's say there was a single gal in here and she had been given a very large trust fund, like really, really large. Now, if that's true, we're doing a building. I'd love to chat with you. (laughs) Just side note. But massive trust fund. And then this guy begins to show affection to her and, you know, and they court or they date or whatever. And they end up getting married. But after three years or so of being married to this gal, he realizes this trust fund is all locked up. I'm not getting my hands on it. And so he walks away from the marriage. Now, how would that young lady feel? Used, right? Like you were using me. There was no love there. You just used me. Here's what I think. I think Judas married Jesus for the money. Judas was in this for his own thing, for his selfish thing. And right about now he realizes the trust fund is locked up. I'm not getting my hands on that thing. All right? Jesus dies. There will be no kingdom. I'm kind of disillusioned by this thing. And now I am out. I'm done. I'm going to sell out for whatever I can get. By the way, isn't that the accusation Satan makes about Job in Job chapter one? He says to God, Job's in it for the money. Job's only following you and obeying you and a righteous man because of what you're giving him. And if the prophets dry up, he'll be gone. It's the same accusation that Satan makes of Job. He was wrong with Job. I think it's right, right here with Judas. He was in it for the money. And I talk to people and they'll say this to me. 
Matt, I used to believe in God, but he failed me, and I'm out. You know what I say? I don't actually say it to him, but I'd like to. You married him for his money. That's what you're said. God didn't act the way that I wanted, and when I couldn't get my hands on the trust fund, I said, forget it. I'm out. I'm not serving him anymore. He didn't give me what I wanted. He acted like God, and I don't like that. So I'm out. And I'm going to sell it, do whatever I can to get what I want. Here's the better way. I love Isaiah 6 because of this. In Isaiah 6, you're introduced to these beings. We call them seraphim. The name literally means burning ones. And the seraphim are always in the presence of God. And all they do is praise and worship God. That's all they do, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days for millennia. That's all they do is they praise God. What do they praise about God? Do they praise his power? Oh, we praise your power. Because power can be nice. Like I wouldn't mind getting some of God's power. Like I'd love to call down fire on my neighbor's marijuana grow. Like boom, that would be awesome. Bomsky took care of that problem, right? That'd be awesome. Do they praise him for his power? Or wisdom? Like, I'd love to have God's wisdom. Make really good choices, really good business decisions. That could really benefit me. Or for his mercy, or for his grace. Those are all, those are good for me. They don't. If you know Isaiah, Isaiah 6.3 says this, that they sing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the thrice holy God. They worship his holiness. That's zero benefit to them. They did not do a cost-benefit analysis of why to worship Yahweh. They said he's holy and he's beautiful and he deserves it. And because of that, they're set on fire and they're moved. You wanna be set on fire and moved? Worship God for his holiness. It moves you and transforms you and sets you on fire like the seraphim. That's what we're supposed to do. It's like music. Music has a power, right? But music, there's no benefit. You're not like, man, if I listen to this album, I'll do better in my career. No, right? That's not why we listen to music. We listen to music because it captures us. In fact, often it costs us. If you want to go to a concert, you're going to throw down a couple hundred bucks minimally. But we do it, why? Because I'm moved by it. There's beauty to that, and I give my heart to it, and it transforms me. That's the difference between Mary and Judas. The beauty of Jesus had moved her, and she gave everything to him. And we talk about her, and we say, oh, she's awesome. Judas, on the other hand, Judas, on the other hand, married for the money, and now it's coming out. Why do you serve Jesus? I've had to repent of Judas-like tendencies. That's me at times. I'm wanting to get something from Jesus. Instead of saying, Jesus, when you called me, you called me to come and die, to take up my cross and follow you. And you are so beautiful, you're worth it. And I have to repent and I pray Psalm 27, 4, Lord, let me inquire of in your temple and let me behold your beauty because that's what's going to change me when I see your beauty. Judas never saw it. And after three years, he was out. And that's what we see right here. So then we get what we talked about on Sunday. I'll read it. It's so amazing. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, 
These are some really important little nuggets here. First day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us go prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, so it's late, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one to another, is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood in the, of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The fourth cup. We talked about this on Sunday. Let me pick up two points. Number one, it's one of my favorite verses. It's verse 22. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? You guys know the disciples were not varsity, right? <laughs> not at all. One of them gets rebuked as Satan. Two of them want to call down fire on a poor village. Two of them get their mom to come and try to lobby Jesus to get a right position. They're always arguing about who is the greatest, right? Jesus over and over says, ye have little faith. It becomes their nickname, like little faith. Yeah, what do you want? You need me? So they're not varsity, but right here, man, they get it right. Is it I, Lord? I love that verse. Is it I, Lord? If you want to have a really good marriage, and to be a really good parent, and to be an unbelievable friend. If you want to be a person that makes friends and, and makes peace with people, begin every kind of conflict or every kind of mm, begin by that little phrase, is it I, Lord? Am I the problem in my marriage? Am I the problem in this friendship? Am, am I the problem at work? Am I the problem in my neighborhood? Am I the problem as a parent? Begin every single beginning of a conflict with that one statement. Pray that. Or is it I? Is it I, Lord? Am I the issue here? If you do that, you're going to find something amazing happens. Number one, you're going to find sometimes it is you. <laughs> and God will change you. And number two, you'll find this. You're much more empathetic for other people and your marriage is better, and your friendships are better, and you're a better parent, you're better on every single level. You're able to ask forgiveness. You know what? I'm started that, and I'm sorry, sweetie. It, it, it's an amazing, amazing thing. Try this. If you don't believe me, try it for one month. Just try it. Whenever there's a little something, before you get involved, just pray, 
is it I, Lord? Someone cuts you off on the road, instead of being like, you say, was it I, Lord? Was I driving bad right there? Start with that. If a dog's barking at you, instead of being like, you stupid dog, say, is it I? Did I step in something? Why are you barking? Is it I? Did I do something to you? Just, I'm serious. Try it. It's amazing. It's amazing what it does to you. You give God the opportunity to really reveal when it is you, and it sets you free from so many conflicts that are just dumb. They're just, that's just stupid. Why are we arguing about that? If you would have begun by simply saying, is it I, Lord, and then listened, it's gone. Secondly, I said on Sunday, there's no lamb. Well, there is a lamb. It's Jesus. But there's no lamb lamb. There's no killed, slaughtered lamb. And so there's questions like, why is that? So very quickly, if you look at John, the Gospel of John, the synoptics, the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you try to piece together like the events of this night, here's what I believe happens. I believe Passover is on Thursday, not Friday. Um, I believe the Sabbath that's talked about is actually the Sabbath day starting out Friday night and going through till Saturday night, that, that you know, 24-hour period. Um, the day of preparation is that Friday morning when you're preparing for the Sabbath. So there's all these like clues in it. So I think personally that Passover is on Thursday and then you've got the normal Sabbath and then resurrection is on obviously Sunday. So what does that mean? I believe Jesus is celebrating the Passover very late Wednesday night or very early Thursday morning, however you want to look at it, because the Jewish time is different than us. So it's at sundown, it says evening. At sundown, Jesus, Wednesday, what we think is Wednesday night, but it's really Thursday morning, Jesus is celebrating the Passover. And he celebrates it into that evening, into that night. Now, why is that important? Because if Jesus is going to die on Passover to be our Passover lamb, then that means this, the Passover lambs have not been killed yet. They get killed on the day Jesus would have been on trial. So Jesus didn't have a Passover lamb at this meal because it's actually being celebrated a little earlier than normal, but not out of, not out of anything that was out of the law, but he was, he was early before the lambs would be slaughtered the next day when he's being slaughtered at the same exact time. So that's what I believe is happening here. You can look through it if you want. Uh, you can do your own research. That's how I think things happen. Passover's on Thursday. Jesus, early Thursday morning or late Wednesday night, our time would be late Wednesday night, Jesus is celebrating this Passover. And, and here's what's fascinating to me about the ancients. Their sleep pattern was so different than us. Do you know that? They didn't sleep like go to bed at 10, wake up at five. They slept like three or four times a day, like three hours, two hours, three hours. And most ancient cultures would wake up like somewhere in the evening and stay up till like two in the morning. And science is saying, that's actually healthier for you. It was the invention of the incandescent light bulb that destroyed the old ways, the old patterns that people used to sleep. Because now you can stay up. Before it was when it was dark, you'd just be like, man, I'm tired, we'll go to sleep. <laughs> Wake up when you want, have a meal then. So I think that's more what's happening right here. Um, I could be wrong, you can disagree with me, it doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus dies and Jesus rises again. That's what matters. The rest, interesting details, but not paramount to our faith. 
And in chapter 27, I'll talk about this. When we talk about Jesus dying, I think in Western evangelical circles, we always think substitution. And I think it's so much more than that. I think on the cross, yes, Jesus substituted for us, but also Jesus provided a propitiation for us and triumphed over evil and forgave us of our sins, provided an example for us. When you look at the New Testament, the overarching example that we're told to follow of Jesus is, guess what? It's his death. Read 1 Peter chapter 2. Read Paul. It's not his life. It's his death. So the example is dying to self, taking up your cross. It's all that that's mixed in with Jesus on the cross. It's brilliant and unbelievable. We'll talk more about that on chapter 27. Tonight, though, we get to, we get to take communion, which is a remembering of not just his death, but also, and I'll read it for you really quick. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it says this. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The two things I think that you, you're, we are supposed to remember is his death that triumphed over the Pharaoh, his death that set us free from the law, his death that's redeemed us, but also we're supposed to remember his return, that the fourth cup is waiting, that the kingdom that was inaugurated by Jesus would be completed one day when he returns for us and we rule and reign with him for eternity. So this evening, I want us to just think about that a little bit. So the crew's gonna come up, we'll pass out communion, and I'll give you a couple minutes just to kind of think, what does that mean if I really believe Jesus is returning for me?